Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. That's Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. We all please rise for the reading of God's word. All right. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God. Please be seated. everybody and welcome to our service it's good to have you here let's open up uh, this time with a prayer guide us O God by your word and spirit that in your light we may see light in your truth find wisdom and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord amen amen today is a special day Um, I heard that two sports teams are playing I believe they are uh, the St. Louis Patriots and the New England Rams, right? How angry are some of you, right? <laughs> but it, it's, uh, every year whenever we had the Super Bowl, uh, it was a time of a little bit of anxiety for me because I would always be wondering if everyone had a place to go to to watch the game. It's like, do you have a place to go to? Do you have a place to go to? And I felt like sometimes I was plugging people in, making sure they had a place to go to if they wanted to watch the game. Uh, It's almost like a national holiday, but um, it's not. It's uh, it's a game. But there are things that we go through in life that we have this idea, this is what it is. This is important, or this is how it should be, or this is what I feel is right and is the truth. And sometimes, we're wrong about that, are we not? Um, my wife and I were having a conversation. I did a little thought experiment with her. Um, she doesn't know I do it with her at times, but I just do it and then, you know, just have a conversation. And I would ask, oh, how's this car? How's this car look to you? Or how about that car? Would you, would you ever want a minivan? Or would you want an SUV? And so we would have this conversation. Uh, and then I would start explaining some facts that I know. What, what, I, what has 
really intrigued me over the decades is that people would drive these cars and then slowly our taste in cars changed. By the way, I might seem like I'm ragging on some cars, just want to let you know I am not. I made that mistake in college when I was, uh, a, I was a president of this Christian group and they asked me to speak and I made fun of this one car. Uh, I'm not going to say it, but I, just, it, I thought it was a terrible car. And then right in front of me was someone who owned that car. So I was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, my friend, would uh, he attended this one church. And the pastor at the time made fun of Volvo cars. And he was so mad because he owned the Volvo. So that's not what I'm here to do. Um, just so you know, I'm not here to make fun of any cars. But just have a thought experiment with me. Um, the question is, which is better, an SUV or a minivan? Which one would you rather have? And so, you know, I had this little talk uh, with Esther, and then I would say little things like, oh, you know, SUVs roll. Um, they roll over. They have a propensity to roll. So when you turn, when you, when you turn your car, you kind of, you see the sh weight kind of shifting. And then if you turn it too much, too fast, then it'll roll over. That's the rollover kind of propensity, or you want to really know the rates for your car. Um, by the way, technology has gotten so much better now, so it's, it's amazing. But in, if you were alive in the 80s, which would roughly make about 20% of you, but if you were alive in the 80s, uh, no one had SUVs. In fact, we didn't even know what they were called. Um, you, if you needed a lot of room because you had a big family, people drove cars that were known as wagons, right? And in these wagons, they would have, uh, it would look like a sedan. A sedan was called a sedan because it was a box, right? So it was basically a sedan is what we know as the four-door car now. But it's three boxes. You have the passenger box, you have the engine box, and then you have the trunk box. So it's three boxes put together, and they called it a sedan. And if you're from not the United States, you might call it a saloon. Whatever it is, it's like three rooms. And then you want an extra cargo space, you make this cargo spot a little bigger, and it was called a wagon. After a while, people uh, wanted a bigger and wanted bigger cars. Um, in the 90s, they released utility vehicles uh, for the regular consumer to buy. These were like military vehicles, uh, if you're familiar with the Humvee and things like that, but utility vehicles. And People loved it. They didn't want something like a minivan. In fact, anything, the word with the word van in it, people didn't like. So minivan, why would I want a minivan? And I, I always thought, man, minivan has such a bad rap. It's probably because no one marketed it well. Should have just called it an MV or something like that. Why a minivan? But then uh, the marketers, the marketing people for these utility vehicles decided something really brilliant. They decided, decided to add sport to it, sport. So then you have sport utility vehicle. So it wasn't known until the 90s. So when they decided to say, oh, this is a sport utility vehicle, people started to love it. Whether you know it or not, in, we would do this research in the 90s. So I would, I would read up on these things. And the propensity to roll is so much higher because just basically you're taking a sedan and then you're just raising it up. So then obviously it's going to roll over more easily. And um, by the way, of all the 
SUV rollovers of all the deaths that happened, 75% are people who didn't wear seatbelts. So if you have a car, just wear your seatbelt all the time. But I would, you know, I would kind of say what has better gas mileage? You know, now, now they have uh, minivans with all-wheel drive, so that's not an issue. So why would you ever need an SUV? Um, and this is what I'm explaining to Esther, okay? Uh, why would you ever need it? Um, to pull something because it has more power. It's like a mini truck. Or if you wanted to go off-roading. So let's say you live in the backwoods somewhere and these roads are crazy. So you would take an SUV. Um, otherwise, it seems to me with the information that I'm sharing with you that the minivan is always superior. And I shared all this information with her. And then I asked her at the end, would you still rather have an SUV over a minivan? And then she answered, yes. She answered, yes. And I said this to her. I said, me too. Me too. Um, I can give you all this information why a minivan is better uh, in so many ways. Uh, but then there is a branding that, that we are affected by. We really like, we just like it. And by the way, some SUVs are not SUVs. They're just luxury cars. Uh, and so when you look at some of these taller crossovers or SUVs, they're just amazing um, machineries. But um, even if I were to share certain things, sometimes we have it in our mind and it's really hard to shift. It's really hard to shift. And if I would ask, after putting out all these facts, would you still want a minivan? And then you said, no, actually I have zero desire for one. It's interesting. Sometimes we need to do a thought experiment on ourselves too. Um, do we have anything that has been branded on us that we really think this is the way? And then facts are being presented and it's like, it doesn't matter. I still feel like I like this better. And why is this important? Why is it important that I start off with a, a seemingly um, just a minor kind of conversation that I had with my wife? Because Jesus starts this passage by saying, therefore, therefore. Therefore means he's concluding something. This passage is therefore. So therefore from what? Therefore, before it said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve mammon, which meant money or possessions, and serve God. Since you can't serve two masters, money or mammon or possessions, we realize that Jesus is telling us that mammon is not a good master. Money is a horrible master to have. But God, he is a good master to have. In fact, a lot of people don't even like the word master. I don't want anything to master me. But Jesus is sharing something. One thing you will be mastered by. And if it's mammon, it's going to be bad. Therefore, if God is your master, then do not be anxious. What's anxious? What's anxiety? Um, a question I can ask is, what keeps you up at night? What do you meditate on constantly? What is it when you think about, what subject is it when you think about your very soul becomes unsettled? So when people read this passage, 
people automatically assume that Jesus is only talking about food and clothing. So when you read the passage, you're like, I could eat anything. I'm totally, maybe, you're, maybe you are really anxious about food and you can't sleep at night because the next day you're like, what am I going to have for dinner? I don't know. But most likely, we don't. Uh, maybe you don't worry about clothes, clothing that much. It's like, you know, I have my outfit set out for the whole week. I'm good. And you think this passage doesn't relate to you or it has nothing to do with you. And that's where I want to say, I don't think so. I think if you really look at this passage, it's not simply talking about food and clothing. And to dismiss this passage saying, you know what? I already know this passage. It's don't be anxious about food and clothing. I get it. Let's move on to the judge not because that's a cool passage. I don't think so. This therefore that the passage starts with builds up all the previous clauses that we've heard so far in this chapter. We were not right with God. Not by any means were we even close. And the more excuses we made, the more pathetic we looked, didn't we? Look, I give tithes. And God would respond, but I gave everything that you have. Look, I pray. But the response could be, but all you do is ask for stuff. Look, I fast. You fast so you look holy. In reality, your heart couldn't be further away from me. But when we looked at Jesus, all that old and wrong way of thinking started to wash away, didn't it? And Jesus, not only, we see Jesus' life, he didn't only just give 10%, he gave up his life. His relationship with God was so perfect and so close that he even taught us to pray. And when he taught us to pray, he says, pray like this, our Father. And what did he abstain from? What was rightfully his and he did not take? The Bible says, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? Who can describe his descendants? For his life is taken away from the earth. And when we look, and when we really look, really look at Jesus, his manner of sacrifice, the way he walked his life becomes beautiful. And that is the Holy Spirit leading our souls away from the lie and darkness in the past and into the light and truth of Jesus Christ. Our hearts start to change when we look at Jesus. And we start becoming more like him, more like the thing we find beautiful. That's called sanctification. The life of Jesus shows us the goodness of God. We can trust him. It's reasonable to trust him. The word anxiety is merimnao, which is a word that's used for over-concern. You give it more concern than you should, and your peace is robbed and taken from you. And if someone comes to tell you about it, saying, hey, 
Isn't this taking up too much of your soul? You may even lash out and say, what do you know about it? You don't know what it's like. But Jesus is showing us another way, a better way to trust in God is a good thing. But trust means not only do we need an object worthy to trust in, but we need to be people capable of trusting, aren't we? So we could always talk about the object worthy of trusting in, but are we capable of even trusting? So we are filled with fear and anxiety, and it pushes anything away that we can possibly trust anything and anyone. Now I could ask the question, who has never had any fear or anxiety about anything in their life before? And I wonder if anybody would really raise their hands. I couldn't raise my hand. What about in the last month? I still couldn't raise my hand. We think it's just about trusting, but what about us? Are we people capable of trust? Can we even trust? And what, are, what is it about us that makes us fearful to trust anyone or anything? When we say we can trust no one but ourselves, I can't trust anybody except myself. What happens when we fail? And do we not eventually all fail? Do we have to live in la-la land? Saying, ah, I didn't fail. Convince ourselves it's still better if I fail than trusting anyone else. As if that would take our misery away. What is it about trusting? I want to take us back all the way to the beginning. All the way to the beginning, not of your life, but just life in general. There was a time when all humans dwelt in harmony with God. You would search for food, and guess what? You would find it. You would run, and you could run and climb as high as you wanted, off the top of the tree, maybe even jump off, and guess what? You wouldn't get hurt. But something happened. When Adam ate that fruit, something happened when Eve ate that fruit. Trust was not only broken, but the ability of restoration was taken away too. And all of life now, if I may, is about people trying to get back to Eden their own way and failing. You can say there is no God, but that doesn't lead you back to Eden. You can say it's about all these other gods then, but that wouldn't lead you back to Eden either. All humans know innately there is something very off about this world, and we are desperately, desperately trying to go back, but we don't know the way. You know why we fight, bicker, complain, hate, and even step on each other? So we don't know the way. And because we don't know the way, we kill and we murder, both 
the oppressor and the oppressed. I've seen not only in history, but in this lifetime, my lifetime, how we have been thoroughly convinced that only if the people without power had power, things would be different. The oppressed need to take power, and then the wrongs will be righted. And you know what I saw? Instead, I saw when power was transferred, the oppressed became the oppressors. We don't know the way. You know, our most popular movie franchise today is something everybody knows. It's incredibly popular. It's the Avengers series. You know what that movie is showing us? How do we fight violent oppressors? There are these violent oppressors coming, and how do we fight them? How do we fight violence? The answer is with more violence. We don't know the way. Jesus comes, and he does something so completely foreign, so completely alien, that he could not have been from earth. He comes on the scene and says to the crowd listening and says, I am the way. Gives himself up on the cross and dies receiving all the violence the world could throw at him. This is why he could say, therefore, do not be anxious. He wasn't only teaching a new way. He is the way. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you as you listen to God's word, as you listen to his voice, he heals you so that you can start trusting again. And you are able to place your trust in the true king. What causes fear and anxiety in you now? Food? Clothing? How about I tell you that in every generation... There is a food and clothing that we struggle with, and it's represented. Food. What are you constantly searching for that you are worried you might not get? Clothing. What do you cover yourself with that's so important that the world sees? I believe, for many of us, this is represented by finances and family. Finances and family. We're so worried about our finances. We're so worried about paying the bills. I'm there with you. I think if I'm speaking, I, I, I just want to sit there and listen to this. Finances are such a big concern for so many people. Some of us, we're concerned because we, are, we don't even know how we're going to pay for our living places, the rent next month, it's day to day. What about family? If you have children, man, doesn't all your thoughts and concern and anxiety fall on them? If you are married, isn't it about, am I ever going to have a baby? Let's be real. If you're not married, Am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to find the right person? 
See, what we clothe ourselves with, what people see in the world. And this is how Jesus responds. Why are you so worried about your finances? Don't you see the birds of the air? They don't even plant or harvest, and yet your heavenly Father provides for them. How much more will he provide for you? And what about, what about what you clothe yourself with, how the people see you, about what you think is going to be next to you, how you're going to live the rest of your life, your life stage, your family. What about the lilies of the field? Why are you so worried about that family situation? They don't even spin or sew or go shopping at Bloomingdale's. They don't make clothes, and yet... Aren't they the most beautiful that you've ever seen? Even more beautiful than the best dressed in any Hollywood Awards event. Your heavenly father, he clothes them. Now I'm going to make a a, a sidestep here. Does this mean you don't work or bother to feed your family? Absolutely not. Of course not. But Jesus is saying, how will being anxious add even one dollar into your bank account or grant you children or a family or a spouse? How will being anxious even help you one iota, one inch, or literally in in the Greek, one cubit? How will that help you? And you shouldn't because it doesn't help you. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there saying, don't be anxious because it's useless. It is useless. Being anxious is useless. It doesn't help you at all. However, he doesn't leave us just there. He uses this appeal to all his listeners. Why shouldn't you worry? In verse 26, it says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In verse 32 says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The appeal that Jesus gives his listeners, it's your heavenly Father. God is your Father. He even gave us a hint that this was coming up when he was teaching us how to pray. Our Father who is in heaven. So if you do have efforts... If you have energy, you still have strength in your bones, you shouldn't put it in anxiety. It shouldn't keep you up at night all the time. This is so hard. Like I said, I'll be real with you. It's very difficult for me. If I don't know next month how I'm going to pay this bill or that bill, there's something deeply unsettling in my soul. And I've never had to go through that in my life until I got married. And it's like, where are all these bills coming from? And No, I'm not saying Esther uses it. Oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble. That's not what it is. It's when you live together, there's all these unexpected expenses that come up. And then we just have to sit down and figure out, oh, we have to do this, this, this. We have to be frugal here. We have to not eat out all the time. Every night can't be date night. That kind of thing, like, we needed to figure it out. But there is something deeply unsettling in the soul for a lot of us. And Jesus is saying, don't be anxious because you have a heavenly father that looks after you. He loves you. The proof is, look at all these other things. Isn't he taking care of them? 
how much more will he take care of you? So if you have energy, if you have effort, if you have strength in your bones, where should you put it? In verse 33, this climax of this, this, there's this progression. There's a crescendo in what he's saying. And in this climax, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. He gives us a taste by showing us he is the true king. He is the way. And now when we put our eyes, what are we to meditate on? What are we supposed to put our concern and our thoughts to? It's to Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And he says it in this context. It's because if we are just left to our own devices, man, that anxiety starts to creep up, doesn't it? It does. Are you with me? Am I the only one that feels this way? If we're just left to our own devices, the anxiety starts to creep up. Finances, children, family, your spouse. And so what does he say? He says, we see it in the word. How do you now live by the spirit following the way? How do you live spiritually as spiritual beings? You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. Don't let yourself talk you out of it and don't let yourself just stand still and let the anxiety build but you must preach to yourself you must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and I'm saying that is preaching to yourself stick this on your wall my late grandfather he he was a man of prayer and I I think there was a culture custom at the time People, when they prayed, they used to always pray in the same spot. I don't know why, but I realized it does something. Uh, Because when people uh, in our generations before us, they would pray, they would always pray kneeling. And when they would pray kneeling, it would usually be wooden floors. And on these wooden floors, if you continue to pray and kneel, grooves start to develop because you're always kneeling and your knees start making a groove. And in my grandfather's room, there would be grooves because he would always pray kneeling, and you would know exactly where he prays, but right next to it was his favorite verse as he was praying. And his favorite verse was, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. My grandfather went through a a ton um, escaping North Korea, running from North Korea all the way to South Korea as we know it now, and waking up whenever the alarm bells would ring because a bombing was about to happen, like an air raid was coming, so the alarms would go. So you just wake up, pick up whatever children or your wife and just run. That's what he was used to. He had eight surviving children that he needed to make sure was okay. He wanted to pray for them, but first... He reminded himself with that verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. 
You have to turn to your inner self and ask, why are you so troubled when it comes to finances? You need to ask, what about your family can you not trust in God for? And then you tell yourself, be still. Put your hope in God. The enemy would use these things, finances, family situations, to rattle and depress us. But instead of fear and anxiety that this brings, Jesus' offer is peace. A peace that the world cannot give. It doesn't understand it, and it cannot give it. And it is a peace given to you through the Holy Spirit. I want to end with this. Uh, It's a song. I was going to sing you a song, but I wanted to explain the song to you a little bit. It's it's, uh, a song that I really like. And um, it's the response song that we have. If you have a little piece of paper that you got when you're coming in, uh, it's there on the back. It's the response song. It's Be Still My Soul. And it's a song that you sing to yourself. You're telling your soul to be still because God is on your side. I love this song, especially the first verse, because the way it's written, the composer would write this song and he would have stanzas. And this, this, uh, these verses are in three groupings. It's be still my soul. The Lord is on thy side. And it doesn't end there. It continues on, bear patiently, because the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. And the way he composes it is, he doesn't let the music end. I, I, I know some of you think you're tone deaf, and you, don't, you probably don't understand, but I assure you, you're not tone deaf, and you do understand. Just convince yourself, right? Preach to yourself, I understand, right? but... The way he does it is, be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. And he goes low and then goes side like that. It goes up. That means there's more coming. The Lord is on thy side. And then that's why we should bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. And then the next stanza says, leave to thy God to order and provide. But that isn't a closing sentence or a statement or stanza. So it's provide. Because in every change, he will remain faithful. And you would think that in this part, that's how the song or the verse could end. But it doesn't go down. He faithful will. And then normally it will go remain, but he doesn't. Composer goes, he faithful will remain, like that. And so there's more. And then the last part, it says, be still my soul. One more time. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, talking to yourself. And then then this is not over yet. Friend, it goes up. Because through thorny ways, even though life is tough, it will lead to a joyful end. What a great verse. What a great song. And after communion, we are going to sing it. But I thought I might sing it for you. Forgive me, I'm not the best singer. 
But uh, I just thought this is how, I hope you remember the song. Well, as I'm singing to you, I hope you can sing this song to yourself. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Let's pray. And Lord, when we are to preach to ourselves, you give us the truth so that we are able to do so. What words could we possibly have if it weren't your words of truth that you've given us? Your word that you give us, your son that you gave to us. And it is through your life, the life of your son, Jesus Christ, that we still have hope this very moment and today. As your people, remind us once again that you are on our side, that you will order and provide, and that you are our best and heavenly friend. Let's take this time to reflect on the word that we've been given. And if there's anything that brings anxiety or an unsettling in your soul, lift it up to God. He will bear it. And he will encourage you, reminding you that he is your heavenly father. Let's pray.